Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll explore how the construction of military installations affected Florida in World War II. Soldiers that are stationed in Florida during the war are going to come back after the war as permanent residents. Tourists have long enjoyed remembering their Florida vacations by listening to the ocean in souvenir conch shells. We wind up with so many shells, we had to buy a shell shop to get rid of them. And then we went diving to get more and more. And long before the Spanish discovered Florida, indigenous people had complex societies here. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his Uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps when he plays reveille. As World War II began in 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland, the population of Florida was less than two million people. The population of Florida grew exponentially each decade after World War II, and military installations constructed during that conflict were a major factor in that growth. During World War II, more than 250,000 soldiers came from Florida. Daniel Hutchinson of Florida State University presented a paper called "Hamlets into Boomtowns: Military Installations and the Transformation of the Rural South During World War II" at the 2010 Agricultural History Society annual conference held at Rollins College. Hutchinson says that Florida, along with other southern states, actively sought to have military installations built. They certainly did during the Great Depression. Tourism to Florida really took a very big hit. And with the coming of World War II, many Florida communities that relied on tourism saw military bases as a way to recover.、Um, hotels,、uh, resorts, tourist destinations of all kinds sent letters to the War Department saying, "Turn our hotel into a troop training facility, or a troop recreational facility, or a convalescent hospital." And the War Department took up、uh, took up these offers. In Miami, for instance. Um, it became a, a, a favored destination for, for especially officers to train for the Air Force and the Navy, and the, Florida really became transformed by by the arrival of these bases. And Florida made a very concerted effort to try to get these bases in their locales. World War II provided Florida with unprecedented economic growth and revived areas that had been crippled during the Great Depression. Defense contracts led to construction jobs and then other civilian employment opportunities after military facilities were built. Rural landowners often benefited from the construction of military installations, but this also sometimes resulted in the loss of communities. 
Daniel Hutchinson. The impact of these bases on rural people depended on a number of factors. To, for many rural landowners, the arrival of the bases meant a completely, cha- completely different change of life. For instance, in building these bases, rural landowners sometimes were forced to sell their lands to the government, forced to move off their lands. And in some cases, this was good. It allowed for new opportunity, a life away from agriculture. But for others, it meant the loss of home, meant the loss of tradition, and sometimes the loss of community, which really was it's an untold sacrifice of what World War II was. We think of the traditional sacrifices of the war in terms of loss of, of blood, of treasure. But this loss of community brought by the arrival of these bases is one of those sacrifices that, that were there too. But for some, some rural people, the arrival of the bases were a huge blessing. They restored or brought vitality to a region that had been really hit hard by the Great Depression. And the arrival of of soldiers and their paychecks and federal dollars transformed communities and brought prosperity where there hadn't been any previously. African-American communities in Florida were particularly impacted by the construction of military installations, often resulting in the destruction of those neighborhoods. African-American communities, because of the political economy of the South, they hadn't received the same sort of funding from state legislatures for things like sewer lines, electrical lines, the basic infrastructure of communities. And when when the War Department came in to build military bases, they sought lands that didn't have these things because it cost money to rip them up and to, to renovate those areas. And so as kind of a a consequence of this racial inequality, African-American communities became sort of prized targets to build military bases because they were the cheapest lands that were available. And because African-Americans didn't have any real political strength in terms of resisting this, they often found themselves wiped off the map. African-American communities that had been there since emancipation, since the end of the Civil War, now were basically laid to waste by the arrival of these military bases. After some military installations were built on top of decimated African-American neighborhoods in Florida, African-American soldiers from northern states faced a new reality here. Another aspect in regards to African-Americans are African-Americans who arrived to Florida from outside the South, from the North. There were a large number of northern African-Americans that that were stationed on Florida bases. And many of these Florida African-Americans, African-Americans that brought to Florida, they encountered Jim Crow and racism really for the first time, Southern style. And as a result, there were a lot of conflicts throughout the state, particularly in Tampa, Tallahassee. There were even a number of actual riots and and large-scale violent disturbances that were brought on by African Americans having conflict with local and military police um, as a result of kind of this simmering tension as a result of, of Jim Crow and racial discrimination. Stark, Florida is located about 50 miles southwest of Jacksonville. Today, Stark is best known as the home of Florida State Prison, where condemned prisoners are executed. In 1940, Stark was a small rural community of about 1,400 people. Life in Stark changed radically when the War Department chose the town as the site of Camp Blanding, an infantry training center for about 75,000 soldiers. During World War II, Camp Landing was Florida's fourth largest city. When this announcement was made, there was a call made for construction workers to come build the camp. And suddenly Tiny Stark was deluged with people. Some 32,000 migrants arrived to the community looking for a job. This is, this is still the Great Depression, so it was a great hold on the South. And so the opportunity for a government job and a government pay scale 
was incredibly attractive. Local reporters who investigate or, or who took note of all the local migrants there found that they came from as far away as outside the South, from, from Texas, from Oklahoma, from, from uh, the Midwest. People came a long way for a hope in getting a job there at Camp Blanding. Um, and so Camp Blanding was built. These people were there. They built this ramshackle community on the outskirts of the camp that was nicknamed Boomtown. And it just consisted largely of basically ramshackle constructed buildings to service the people living there and the soldiers. And it was, uh, it, it, it was a, in some ways, both a benefit and a thorn in the side of Stark. Stark benefited tremendously economically from the arrival of these soldiers. But Stark had a difficult time with its limited infrastructure processing and dealing with thousands of people, thousands of, of new students in the schools, thousands of new mouths drinking water from the, the, from the, from the water system. It was, it was really taxing to the community, so it brought benefits and challenges to, to Stark. Many other rural Florida communities were significantly impacted by the creation and expansion of military installations. As Daniel Hutchinson explains, Pensacola Naval Air Station pulled thousands of workers away from surrounding communities. Pensacola is a great example. It was a community that had a long-standing military presence there, predating World War II by a large, a large extent. But World War II really heightened the demand for, for labor there in the community on these military bases. The Pensacola Naval Air Station, for example, hired 15,000 civilian workers to run its facilities. And most of the jobs on that base were at government pay scales. And as a result, you have an influx of migrants from Florida's rural areas coming into Pensacola, seeking jobs either at the Naval Air Station or in some of the um, manufacturing uh, facilities there. And Pensacola booms. It becomes a booming war town that really has to um, struggle with, with, with some intense growing pains during that time period. But for rural people, this was a real opportunity. And you have thousands of Floridians leaving the fields and going to work in the cities near these military bases. While many African Americans were negatively affected by the creation of new military bases, others saw economic opportunity. Black farmers in Belle Glade were at the center of economic and racial tension. The fact that thousands of agricultural laborers, and, and especially many African American agricultural laborers, left the farm fields, it created a real shortage of labor for um, Florida farmers. And this proved a very, very sensitive issue. Because, because there were fewer workers, those workers that remained were able to demand higher wages and be more assertive than they ever had previously in a very, very um, historically very difficult labor environment for, for uh, African Americans in South and Central Florida. In Belle Glade, African-American farmers became so assertive that they demanded higher wages, they organized, and they even at one point held hostage the produce that they had picked in order to get the, the wages they felt they earned. And the tensions reached such a, such a level. One official there in Belle Glade wrote to the federal government warning that unless this assertiveness and this, this labor strike that African-Americans had, had committed, if, unless it ended soon, the killings would soon start, which was a very, very telling phrase, and, and in some places in the South, such violence did occur. After World War II, the United States military became integrated, but racial segregation was the norm at Florida's wartime military installations. Daniel Hutchinson. Absolutely. 
the, the, the U.S. military was a, a, a segregated military, and, and military bases in the South were just as segregated as the communities they surrounded, sometimes even more segregated. African-American soldiers lived in separate barracks. They frequented separate recreational facilities, had, went to separate PX exchanges. Um, they was in a completely segregated existence. On the battlefields of Europe and the Pacific, white and black soldiers may have bled together, but on the home front, on these military bases, they had sharply constrained lines that they could not cross. And if they did, it could cause problems. During World War II, Florida's population exploded. Key West had 13,000 residents in 1940 and 45,000 by war's end. The population of Miami almost doubled to more than 325,000. After the war, the population of the United States increased by 15%, and the population of Florida expanded by 46%. For Florida, one of the lasting impacts these military bases have is it brings in millions of non-Floridians to the state for the first time, who see Florida's beaches, Florida's climate, as a really welcome tonic to the doldrums of, of the Great Depression. And many of these soldiers that are stationed in Florida during the war are going to come back after the war as permanent residents. They're going to move from the, their, wherever they're from in the north and the west and, and decide to remain in Florida. So a military, military bases serve as, in some ways, great exposure for the state. Other tangible impacts that the military bases bring are that it, it gives Florida the experience to bring future federal jobs and federal infrastructure to the state. It's hard to imagine that without these military bases that Florida wouldn't have been as successful in drawing things like NASA and the Space Coast into existence. There's a connection there. Both of those were big government, big military pro uh, projects, and there's, there's a connection there. Daniel Hutchinson of Florida State University presented the paper Hamlets into Boomtowns, Military Installations and the Transformation of the Rural South During World War II at the 2010 Agricultural History Society Annual Conference at Rollins College. Because they know how he plays when someone gives him a beat. He really breaks it up when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle bug company B. The company jumps when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle bug company B. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web to find great books about Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of Florida Frontiers, and much more. To receive free copies of our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report, click on the Join Now button and become a member of the Florida Historical Society.
For many decades, tourists have enjoyed dreaming about Florida vacations while listening to the ocean in souvenir conch shells. Janie Gould talks with a couple who used to sell the shells. The horse conch, a mean critter that feeds on the delectable meat of the queen conch, is Florida's state shell. But you're much more likely to recognize the queen conch. Its curved pink shell symbolizes fun in the sun. Phil and Joan DeFranco worked as lobstermen when they moved to the Lower Keys from Long Island in the 1970s. But they kept getting conch shells in the lobster traps on their boat. We wind up with so many shells, we had to buy a shell shop to get rid of them. And then we went diving to get more and more. Now it's protected, but in those days, could you take pretty much as many as you could get? 20 a day. Tell me where the conch lives and how you take them. They're usually in 10 to 20 feet of water on the bottom. They look very much like the bottom because they have growth on their back, just like the surrounding growth. In other words, they can hide? They hide by not moving. Most people don't recognize them. You were telling me that they have a foot that is what they walk with. It propels them along the bottom very slowly, just bump along. And if there are things in the area that could be considered predators, they don't move. Of course, when they don't move, you can't even see them because they blend in so well with the bottom. But you had a way of seeing them, right? We got used to it. You knew where they were or knew what they looked like? Well, we also knew that they were usually inshore of a pile of rocks. When was season? Was it year-round? Year-round. No off-season. They were always there, always available, and you could always bring them in? Weather permitting. What was the biggest or best conch you ever brought in? Probably was about 14 inches long. It was one that we grew in our canal. If a conch had a chip in it, no one would buy it that way, so we put it in our own canal. It had a wall of stone so they couldn't climb out. In several weeks, the conch would grow bigger and bigger than they could possibly grow in the ocean. We'd get a beautiful color to it. Intense colors. In the canal, there was probably more plankton and algae as the um, food source. In the canals, they really thrived. If it had a chip in it, chip would mend, and then we would take it and... The way of all conch, they wind up on the shelf. The shelf and the dinner table. Selling them to a tourist, right. So the conch was a real survivor. Very much so. How much would you get for a good queen conch? 12 to $15. Did you remove the meat from it yourself? You freeze the shell overnight, and then the uh, meat slides right out. People who say you have to drill a hole in the no. shell are wrong. You don't do that. It damages the shell. He made the best conch fritters around. Anytime we had company, he had to make the conch fritters for everybody. In a three-year period, you brought in probably a 1,000 conch. Yeah. So it was a good little business. No, it wasn't much money-making, but it was fun. Joan had a close call one time underwater. My wife didn't have enough weight on her belt, so I put a couple of pounds of weight on, and she went down and picked up a conch and then couldn't come back up. Luckily, I was looking down there, so I was struggling. She wouldn't let go of the conch, and she didn't know enough to take the belt and just drop it. I went down and helped her up. That wasn't the way it went. I had the conch in my hand, and I was on my way up, and he said, Here, take this other conch, because I see another one down there. When I took his conch, that's when I started to go back down. Couldn't come up. Joan and Phil DeFranco are retired in Vero Beach now. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. 
Research has revealed that, unlike the deserted wilderness pictured in many older school textbooks, the pre-Columbian world was a land teeming with highly evolved indigenous groups. What part did Florida's native people play in shaping the colonial campaigns of France and Spain? Bill Dudley talks with a scholar who draws some surprising conclusions from studying the documents of this turbulent period in our state's history. Your main challenge was going to be controlling the Indians. And that was a main part of, of the entire colonial Spanish America. Erin Woodruff is a Ph.D. candidate at Vanderbilt University. A few years ago, she began reading 15th and 16th century Spanish colonial documents, becoming fascinated by the story of Spain's adventure in the New World, beginning with Pedro Menendez and St. Augustine. One of my documents I was reading was the original contract between Pedro Menendez de Aviles and the king. And then that summer I went to Spain and found many of his letters that he wrote from Florida back to the crown, and many of them dealt with Indians. Then I continued looking through them, the other, the other men and soldiers that were there, and eventually it became very clear to me that the contact between the Indians and the Spanish was not simple, and that it was very complicated, and the Indians had a lot of power, and there was a lot of negotiation between the Spanish and the Indians continuously. After Columbus and the failed expeditions of Narvaez and de Soto, most of the Europeans setting foot on Florida soil were freelance slavers. For example, Juan Ponce de Leon was a slaver, and they would go to uh, the Bahamas Islands, and they did the same thing in Florida. They'd go to the Bahamas Islands, and they would trade with the Indians, and they would gain their trust over a few days, and then they would get them on the boat, basically trick them. And then they would take them back to Española or Cuba, whichever island needed the workers for the gold mines. And literally in one slaving expedition, I believe 12,000 Indians died. They were taken from the Bahamas, I think it was about 15,000, and only 3,000 survived to Española. And this is just because of the conditions that they were put in, because they would go from island to island. And those left on the ship were kept in these pens and they would just die. Then in 1564, the French established a settlement at Fort Caroline, north of present-day Jacksonville. The Spanish saw this as a threat to their shipping lanes to and from South America and the Caribbean. A few days after founding St. Augustine in August 1565, Pedro Menendez set out to eliminate the French problem with some help from a local cacique, or chieftain. They came onto the land, And they were there a couple days before any Indians came out. They came out from the woods. They had a discussion. They exchanged goods. And then he had an ally for a couple months with the Cacique Siloy. That was the name of the Cacique. He was a Tamuqua. And he was actually at war with Satsuriba, another Tamuqua Cacique, who was allied with the French. Siloy helped the Spanish to find Fort Caroline, showed them the way by land, and gave them information on how many men were there. And so Menendez was able to execute his surprise attack by land on the French fort. Menendez's letters contain accounts of the ways in which his people attempted to win over the natives. They had to make a deal. They had to make a deal with the cacique, and then he would supply workers. The cacique would get, he would get power, weapons from the Spanish. He got their alliance that he was supplied with priests, So they would begin a Catholic conversion. He would also get, obviously, trinkets, trading goods, Spanish clothing. For many of the Indians, and especially the caciques, having the Spanish goods was a status symbol. 
and they could use it against their enemies. The French colony was destroyed, but Menendez's struggles in dealing with the native Floridians were only beginning. By all accounts, they were a tall, impressive race of people who could at times be friendly and cooperative, or obstinate, secretive, and violent. I think they were pretty edgy. They were described as warlike. They were strong. They had flaming arrows. And it appears that they would use the Spanish when they needed them. For example, the Siloe Cacique, he wanted to use the Spanish against his enemy, Satariba. However, within a few months, once Satariba had been defeated, the Cacique of Siloe attacked the Spanish because the Spanish were using his people for labor and to get food for their settlement. In the absence of support from bigger crown colonies in Cuba and Mexico, the settlement was often dependent on the chieftains for much of its food supply. The situation was made worse by the Europeans' refusal to eat seafood, which they could have had in abundance. They, they said that, you know, these Indians, they eat these oysters and this fish, and it's disgusting. They refused to eat it, which is much of the reason that they starved, until they could get their livestock, which the Indians killed often. In protest, they would kill the cows. Aaron Woodruff says the Spaniards were hoping to institute the quasi-feudal encomienda system here, as they had done in Mexico and South America. Menendez did not enslave the Indians. He, of course, wanted to enslave them, but he failed. I mean, his goal was to get encomiendas. And an encomienda is you have a large piece of land and you control all of the individuals that live on that land and you extract work from them, labor or tribute or money. It's not exactly slavery, but they were not free. That's what he wanted to do, but he could never do it. He didn't have enough people. There was too much space. The Indians were never cooperative, and he didn't have enough money. Basically, Florida was, it was underfunded, and the Mexicans and Cubans kept failing on sending the supplies and everything that Menendez would have needed. Too often, Spanish ambitions in La Florida were thwarted, not only by shifting political alliances and the warlike posture of their Indian neighbors, but by dissension within their own community. There's constant strife. Constant strife between the Spanish themselves. They had several different rulers. There were arguments between the Spanish in Florida and the Spanish in Cuba. Many people wanted to desert Florida because it was not profitable. There was not gold. The Indians were not being helpful. They could not grant encomiendas, which were these land grants, which would make the Spanish wealthy because the Indians would not cooperate. So you have the settlers there who are basically trapped inside of the garrison at St. Augustine who aren't making any money. And they were told that Florida was this wealthy place and they would instantly have a fortune. So they want to leave, you know, Menendez, the government's trying to keep them there. Others are exploring, and then there's the Indian issue. So if you leave the garrison, you can be killed basically at any moment. Given his preference, Menendez would have moved the entire community up the coast to Santa Elena, his settlement on present-day Paris Island, South Carolina. The Spaniards could never be sure where they stood with the tribes. It just depended upon the year, upon the time, upon the group. For example, the Guale Indians in present-day South Carolina or Georgia, they had a very friendly relationship with the Spanish until the 1590s. They were a constant ally, which is part of the reason why Menendez wanted to move the capital of Florida to Santa Elena. And the Crown did not want him to do that because the purpose of Florida for the Crown was to be on the Bahamas Channel. 
to protect the ships. But as time went on, Woodruff says things began to slowly improve for the colonizers. More and more missionaries came. Eventually what happened is many of the Indians either died or left. By the 1600s, you have new groups forming or groups consolidating because there was so much death from disease. So you have a diminishing population. And with a diminishing population, the Spanish were able to get a lot more control. That's scholar Aaron Woodruff. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week. And until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. And follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.